enabling data engineers to create data pipelines easily while delivering data streams that meet low latency production requirements is a difficult balancing act. David Chiaffi and Johnny Gattinger joins us today to share how they have created that balance at Estuary. Estuary is a data operations platform that synchronizes data across the systems where data lives and delivers it where you want it to live with sub-second low latency. Dave and Johnny will share the technical choices that support sub-second performance, use cases for batch and streaming data applications, and some of their business perspective as an early-stage startup. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a Senior Director of Product Management for Security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter, at Jocelyn Byrne. Hi, and welcome to Software Engineering Daily. I'm really excited to uh, interview Johnny Grettinger and Dave Yaffe from Estuary. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having us. Great to talk to you. Um, Dave is... um, the CEO of Estuary, he's been had multiple successful companies and has a very deep expertise in ad tech and data pipelines. Uh, Johnny is the CTO and the creator of Gazette, which is a specialized open source streaming platform. We can talk a little bit more about that later. And in, in general, um, both of these guys are very focused on making everything feel like streaming. So we're going to talk about that. Um, the thing I love about your platform in general is your focus on enablement for regular uh, data users and pipeline creators where, and then having this um, output that's truly enterprise grade. Uh, that's an interesting hat trick. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. But before I do, maybe you guys can introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about um, your history. Sure. Um, I can kick it off. So I'm Dave Yaffe. Um, I'm, Johnny and I have actually founded a few companies before. I'd been in the MarTech space for a long time, previously an engineer, a mechanical engineer, actually, not a computer engineer, um, and ended up getting into MarTech just randomly by joining a startup. Um, that led to three successful exits, um, You know, one, one of which um, I co-founded the previous one. Um, I was you know, one of the first employees. Um, and so the, the last company that Johnny and I did was a company called Arbor. It was a data platform, uh, cared a lot about real-time data, and that's kind of how we got down this path. Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm Johnny. Um, I kind of, I cut my teeth originally doing like natural language processing research. Uh, it's kind of funny to me because I, I got into this, you know, into data at first in the context of like machine learning and got, you know, just kind of pulled into marketing technology in like 2009. And I've been working with data ever since then. And, I've kind of been watching on the sidelines is like chat GPT and all this, like there's been so much change there. It's been fascinating that it's not what we do, um, but it's kind of, kind of an interesting trajectory, but I've been, I've been working with Dave since, uh, since uh, about 2009 and across like a few different businesses. Streaming is just kind of in the marketing technology space. Um, streaming is very important. It was very important for the previous business that we built together. Uh, kind of enabled that business and and we kind of took it on as a, as a core competency for that reason uh and that led us to you know creating gazette and sort of it's been put us on this treadmill that's kind of led us down the path that we're on now 
I want to talk a little bit more about that, um, uh, what estuary problems estuary is solving, but I'll also sell, uh, just say that uh, it's interesting you started with the data problems inside of NLP. I'm a data person, uh, which I think is a particular kind of um, myopia in which every problem <laughs> becomes a data problem. Um, so, uh, so I think uh, it's all still the same right questions. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I want to talk about Estuary as a data operations platform for synchronizing all the data you've got into the look and feel of streaming. Um, but before I do, maybe you can talk a little bit about what are you observing in customers? Why, why isn't everyone just streaming everything? Why is it so hard? There's a lot. Maybe I can kick that off and I'm sure Johnny will have some comments as well there. But at a very high level, maybe that gets into some of the reasons that we built the product that led to the company that, you know, we've, we've started now estuary um, at a high level. We were a, we had the same problems that, you know, I think everyone has as a streaming company. We were a small, smaller startup and we cared about um, real-time data. The reason that we cared about that was because for us in the marketing space, it turns out that if someone expresses intent and, and doing something like purchasing a product, if you get back in front of them quickly, you'll have a much higher likelihood of actually convincing them to buy your product. Um, and in that regard, streaming is kind of important. Um, so we ended up building, you know, a, a system that allows you to do something that you can't really do in, in most streaming systems. You're either in most streaming systems, you're either looking at data that's happened right now, events that have happened right now, uh, in maybe like the past couple of days, because um, most streaming systems are kind of a buffer, or you're using a batch system and you're using um, data that's happened historically. So maybe either hours or days ago at the, at the latest, and then the earliest could be all time. But it's really hard to get a, a full view um, of both of those things without doing a lot of complex stitching. Um, and we wanted to be able to do that right in a streaming product that we built and controlled um, and not have to run like two big separate systems that are both you know, distributed systems together. So we ended up something, doing something non-traditional. Johnny decided to build his own streaming system. It's called Gazette. That's, you know, a open source product right now. Um, and it's backed natively by cloud storage. So what it, it's able to do is it's able to look all throughout time um, and, and not have to do anything special when it's storing its data. It can store its data in a, in a way that batch systems can talk to as well. Um, so that's really like the core problem that we saw is the one that we we identified that other people um, had as well. You know, you're using streaming systems for very operational use cases for things that are happening right now. You're using batch systems for analytical use cases that, for things that have happened historically. And if you want to merge the two, it's, it's actually quite hard. Um, and that involves, you know, and that accounts for things like doing backfills of data to refill a batch system or something. But Johnny, I'm curious what you would say there too. Yeah, and I would, I would kind of say, um, I, like my, my shot across the bow is that most people really don't care about streaming or batch. It's just, you know, it's just, I have, I have data over here and I want it to be there. And I, I want to talk to you in terms of like data sets. So for example, in marketing technology, we're making decisions based off of user interactions that we've seen, you know, in the past and also the present. And the fact that it's in a streaming system or a batch system really doesn't matter. So really as an outcome, what I want is just, I want a picture of my understanding of the user so that I can make a decision off of it. And that, that picture and that understanding of the user should be as up to date as possible, but also needs to reflect all of the history 
of the encounters that I've had with that user in the past. So that that's really what like everyone wants. And batch and streaming are just their approaches for trying to solve that problem. Um, and it's, you know, to the question of like why why isn't streaming used more broadly? They generally just because it's harder. Um, we've seen over I'd say the past seven or eight years, um, there's there's kind of a, a, an initial rush to implement the streaming infrastructure within companies. Uh, a lot of people got excited about it, and then they kind of quickly got burned on it. Uh, they realized it was a lot harder than they thought. Uh, they needed expertise that is kind of hard to come by in terms of operating the list infrastructure and using it well. Uh, it required that they build applications that are going to go, you know, use this data where they need to sort of develop and care for and be these up, you know, maintain these applications over time. Um, and it just was kind of harder than a lot of companies that people were expecting to really kind of roll this out and use it holistically across the board. And then as Dave mentioned, like streaming infrastructure generally just means like a buffer of data. You know, if you spin up like an Amazon, that's a 24-hour window of data, which is great for some use cases, but if what you really need is to have a comprehensive understanding of like what's happening now and also all of your historical data, it's completely insufficient. So if you've got to implement one or the other, you have to pick between streaming and batch because doing both is kind of hard as a, as a company. And it's probably just going to be an easier path for you, an easier implementation path. And I think that's what's developed for a lot of companies over time. That there's just been kind of this the default to batch just because it's so much easier to get that that rolling uh for building applications and products on top of yeah i think there's a lot of excitement for streaming and then um it got hard and now we're sort of seeing the pendulum swing back a little bit uh in in the customers i've worked with um and i think the newest and most exciting thing are is really the use cases that combine both batch and streaming. I'm going to share with you a use case and maybe we can talk through the architecture or the operational steps. Uh, but before I do, I feel like I stepped over, you know, what does Estuary do? Yeah. Mm. I'll take a quick stab at this one and then Dave can flush it out. Fundamentally, there are kind of three major pieces. Capturing data from different data sources. And this can be all kinds of places. This could be databases where you're doing change data capture. It could be like SaaS APIs like Salesforce or HubSpot that you're using. Uh, it could be NoSQL systems like MongoDB, um, all kinds of different places. So capturing the data, transforming it in place. So basically being able to reshape it, filter it, uh, join it, aggregate it, sort of in motion. And then the third piece is materializing this back out again. So taking a, a data product or data set and turning that into a database table or turning it, you know, putting it into an analytics warehouse or writing it into a pub sub system or uh, a SaaS API. Again, there are lots of different places where we want to work with data. Um, but fundamentally, what s Flow does is the platform for capturing, transforming, and materializing data to different places. I think that's a pretty good uh, view of it. I would just say, you know, put very simply, it's everything data pipelines, low latency views, and you get historic data. Um, and we try to make it as simple as possible. So we try to make it everything as simple as possible, but no simpler, right? So you still get a code view into um, the, your world when you're doing transformations. That code looks like SQL today. Um, and, you know, you're able to um, access it that way. Yep. And one one level down in the onion, unwrapping the onion a little bit. Uh, just one really important distinction about how flow works. 
is that when we talk about capturing data and materializing data between two different systems, um, oftentimes when people talk about that, they need it in the context of a point-to-point -point system where basically data is being moved directly from the capture to the place where it's being materialized. Uh, Flow actually introduces a concept called a collection. Uh, and just to explain why you might want this, first of all, what a collection is, uh, it's fundamentally, it's a real-time data lake. So when you have a collection of data that is building out in the user's cloud storage files that are the contents of that collection, but it is real-time, it's actually millisecond latency. So what's nice about this is that, you know, picking on uh, Kinesis again for a moment, so Kinesis has like a 24-hour buffer of data that's going to be available on that Kinesis topic. Uh, you can capture from Kinesis into a collection, uh, and I can do this today, and it starts building out this, this real-time data lake of all the data that has ever gone through that Kinesis topic. Now, I have this data in cloud storage, and I can, a week from now, or a month from now, or tomorrow, doesn't matter, I can materialize that data back out again. I can materialize it into an analytics warehouse, or another up-sub system, or wherever. And what's really nice about those separate materializations, because they are leveraging that cloud storage, if I materialize this data set, you know, starting today, and then again a month from now, into two different places, I get exactly the same data all times. And that stays up to date continuously as new data comes into that community topic. That's what I wanted to ask about, because when you talk about collection and the materialization, it feels like an everything machine. Because it's kind of it's so difficult, right? You've got all these sources coming in and the capture, and that helps me understand it. It's kind of like a lake. It has a place to be. But then materializing it in near, you know, rapidly to all these different target systems. One, who sets that up and how? And two, what technically makes that happen so fast and accurately? What were some of the underpinnings there? The first question. Dave likes my question. I'm doing okay, right? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to just try to answer the first question, um, which was who sets that up and how? And then Johnny will get into the technical details. But um, we have a graphical UI in which you can set up any entity in the system. That graphical UI is, I can use it, right? I'm not, a, I'm no longer an engineer. I used to be one, but um, I can use it. I can set these up. It's configuration driven. You can also use, um, access anything in the system through YAML configuration files. So you can set it up uh, programmatically too. Um, and then um, you can set up transformations programmatically effectively um, using a, a Gitpod VS Code integration. Inside so, of Estuary, I can do transforms. That's correct, that's correct. Um, and so the user is really targeted to be a data engineer, but if you're, Doing most things, you can do it as a data analyst. You can you can do it as a, a less technical person, um, and we we intend to do that. Right? It's as simple as it can be, but no simpler. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I like that. We can talk a little bit about that more, but I think uh, you know the data engineer, the profile of the data engineer is changing all over industry, and there's just a lot of really overburdened uh, data producers or savvy, you know. Uh, scripters, right? Uh, they need a tool like this, which is, I, I do think one of the most appealing things is just enablement for different types of levels of data engineer. Um, so I do really like that. Um, and I assume that would just be like an app I would set up and just offer access through my regular IAM to my teams. Yeah. So um, we are a SaaS app currently. Uh, we have not deployed 
uh, on-prem or through a VPC yet. That is something that we are planning on doing, um, but it's it's probably at least a few months out. Um, so if you're you would you would deploy using the standard IAM and all that stuff, but through the SaaS app, yeah. All right, so I have my data engineer using this. Uh, simple, but no simpler. I'm stealing that. Um, and uh, so I press go, but it seems like then a lot of magic has to happen to get it into the right yeah. place. Yeah. So, and this is where kind of Gazette comes in into the picture. And Gazette is very much, it's an implementation detail. You don't need to know anything about it to use flow. Um, but the, the architecture of Gazette is very important on you know, this conversation around what actually happens when I create a materialization. Um, so at this point in time, I've, I've created a materialization and I've clicked go, essentially. Uh, I have a bunch of data that's been captured you know, over time historically in a cloud storage lake uh, and, you know, an S3 bucket set. Um, and I have new data that's also kind of coming in through a capture conveniently. So what needs to happen is we need to sort of rehydrate that, that materialization from that historical data in that cloud storage lake. And one of the neat things, just to give a little bit of detail on like what that actually does and how it's architected. Um, so, because that fundamentally models this concept called a journal. Uh, and I apologize if I go too deeply down the rabbit hole, I'll try and I'll try and thread the view of these conversations. So a journal, it's you can kind of think of it as like a write-ahead log. It's like an unbounded append-only plot. And Gazette Brinkers offer journals as their sort of their concept. Like so you create journals within Gazette Brokers, and these are unbounded files that you keep on writing to the end the end of. And what Gazette is doing is it's basically chunking up the content of these journals and writing them into cloud storage. Um, they're called fragment files in the parlance of Gazette, but basically they're just files that represents the, the store, you know, the content of this journal, radius of byte content of this journal over time. And that is what collections are. That's how they're represented. They are represented as Gazette journals. Uh, and all of the data of those journals is available in cloud storage. But what Gazette does as a broker is it's really good at um, stitching together what's in that historical data lake and the really real-time stuff that's coming in right now. So it seamlessly transitions from uh, backfilling, pulling that data out of cloud storage up until it reaches the present and then streaming that data from there. So it's kind of that, that transition is completely dynamic and managed. And the one other trick it has, which ends up being really important for doing this at scale, is that um, cloud storage is a super elastic resource in terms of IO. Like if you ask S3, I want to read a full bunch of data all at once. S3 is really good at doing that. So rather than having readers try and like read through the Gazette brokers where the Gazette brokers need to go like read the data from cloud storage and then proxy that data to the readers, um, cloud storage had this, this concept of a pre-signed URL where you can basically stamp a URL that gives the bearer the capability to go read the file. Because that architecture takes advantage of this a lot, where um, I have this data lake, the brokers understand that data lake, and they understand how to stitch together the files of that data lake with what's happening right now. And if a reader comes in and asks for old content or historical content in that data lake, the broker is just essentially handed them a URL. They said, here you go, go read it yourself. And that is incredibly powerful from like a, a scaling perspective. Because oh, yeah, means- that makes much more sense to me. Because when I, 
when I think about what you claim, and I, I think about that, like, oh, I'm going to like call and response and it goes around, it's going to take too long. So now that makes sense that it's just handing back this um, signed path. That's right. That's, so, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. From a, an operational perspective, it's way better because it means you really just need to scale your your brokers to the size of your rights that are coming in right now. And you can throw applications which are trying to read as much data as they possibly can. And those applications are not going to impact your production brokers. They don't put them at risk at all. Uh, and they're able to basically soak up as much read IOPS, like as much read IO as cloud storage able to support. Um, we can get into talking about costs later, but, uh, but um, uh, you know, whenever somebody says they're going to take over transforms, I get a little nervous. <laughs> is there is there a notion of like uh, eventing transform so that you have some sense of lineage, or uh, is that how does I guess how do transforms work? Yeah, this is a place where we're very much developing right now. Um, we have a, a uh, like a fully coded thing that's going out probably in the next week or two. So this is very far along, but not out yet, which is part of like there's a little hesitancy here just because it's not in our documentation yet. We're basically giving a preview of, of something that's that's very much coming, but did not quite out the door yet. Well, you, you heard it here first at Software Engineering Daily. We're going to get a preview. And then, uh, Johnny, I'm going to talk to you later about marketing and software and how people often talk earlier. Yeah. Johnny loves to qualify these things because he's gotten burned too many times as a software engineer, promising dates. So he, he's, he doesn't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the transformation product that we are, uh, that we're offering is it's a sequel. It's, I, I think of it as event driven sequel where I am essentially like as a, as a user of this, uh, I have, um, and then just to back up one step and talk about like how transformations are modeled within flow within the products, um, transformations are done in terms of building a collection of data. So what that means is that I am defining a collection of data that I want to exist. And then I'm defining how that collection gets built in terms of transforming other collections of data. And that was like a very deliberate choice. And the reason why we did it that way is that it makes provenance tracking a lot easier. It makes it very clear how a collection of data came to be and exactly what went into it to make it that way, which is a bit of a problem in the streaming industry overall. Now, no one knows how these data products are, are built. And it's like, there is no self-service capability to really figure out exactly how a data set came to be and what went into it. Uh, so we're, we're trying to, to, to work the sausage back through the, the grinder here. That's significant. I think that's significant um, observation on your part. You know, there's just this building pressure behind uh, what people call trans call lineage, but is really transforms. I'm pretty sure uh, because it's provenance plus plus. It's what happened, who touched it, where did it land, uh, what calcs ran on it, and um, you know, it's a much wished for thing in enterprise, but it's phenomenally tricky to do. Uh, so I think that's really thoughtful of you when you think about a data operations platform. There's going to be a lot of demand for that. Yeah. Which you probably already knew. This stuff is tricky and anything we can do to sort of make data products more discoverable, like me as a, as a user within an organization where a lot of people are touching stuff, uh, any, any kind of tooling we can provide to help users understand what data is available and exactly how it was built and what we use 
is, you know, for the better. So let's play um, a fun game. I want to, I'm going to share a use case with you and then talk me through kind of where the pieces of estuary fit in or if at all, feel free to tell me that that use case is not good and we'll figure out a new one. But, uh, you know, typically I think about when I think about combining batch analytical historical with real-time streaming. Uh, one example that I like to think through is let's say, you know, we're going to build a new um, data application within our call center that unifies all of my old batch information that um, I have on, like say, on Jocelyn. When Jocelyn calls in, I know what bill she's paid, what her last credit score was, and that's all just sort of sitting in a structured warehouse somewhere. But at the same time, I need to understand like, oh, she's been called. She called 10 times in the last week. Uh, you know, they, I need all that real-time streaming data that tells me um, a lot about my what experience that customer's having now. So let's say like as a group, we want to build a data application that unifies that so that my, you know, my operators can immediately see like, oh, it's a basically good customer who is upset. Um, to do that, right, I'd have to um, at least get my, enable my data engineer, right, to connect to that data, that structured data, to connect to that stream. Um, so that's kind of the starting place. Then what happens? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways to skin this, but I'll, I'll talk about uh, about one approach that, that I would probably, you know, um, just, to, just to flesh out the example and kind of ground this up. So the, the end thing that I'm really after in this case is I need like a, a fast place where I can look up, given a customer record, what do I know about this customer? Uh, and that, that's inclusive of things like, um, you know, I, I think you use the example of like credit score or something like that. AT, maybe ATM swipes, credit card swipes. That's yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it also can be things like call center events that have happened where this, this customer is called in. So I, I essentially want to just be able to, I want a consolidated place where I can look up and, you know, because my call center operators and you know, clock design where I can look that stuff up. And, and that means that could be, you know, a key value store, some kind or a database, one or the other. Um, but basically, you know, a, a system that's tuned for sort of point lookups, even given a particular customer ID, what do I know about this person? Um, and then we want to feed this data product with a bunch of different sources of data. So that could be call center calls, that could be, um, you know, stuff that's coming from another system. But fundamentally, if all of it has the customer ID somewhere in there, that's what I'm joining on. Yeah, let's uh, assume we know what that person, a person is, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Just a, a, a yeah. Um, so fundamentally, I've got like at least two different sources of data that are keyed on the customer ID in different ways. And what I'm really, you know, I'm going to drop a little like low terminology, but I want a collection of data where the key of this collection is the customer ID and the content of the documents of this collection is aggregating what I know about this user. So this could be, and just to give a little more detail in, uh, Collections are JSON documents, so it's a document rather than a database record, uh, which means that you can have sort of substructure within these. You can have things like arrays of call center interactions that are carried in the inside of this document, keyed on the customer ID. So to give an example of what you can do with Flow, I can take these sources of data and kind of map them into this common shape keyed on the customer ID where I've got, you know, for example, if I have a call center event, I might have a little uh, a bit, you know, calls kind of location within my document that's an array of different call interactions that I've had with this user. Um, and 
I can transform it in that way and then materialize it into a key value store. Uh, and what is kind of neat and unique about flow materializations is that they will actually aggregate all of this stuff together so that if I have different documents where I've got, you know, a call center event, you know, with the same customer entity, I've got a call center event over here and over there, I've got um, ATM swipes or something like that. Again, keep on the same uh, customer ID. We will actually, the materialization will merge them together into a single document that has all the contents from both of these sources. Uh, so that's one way to, to, to do joins within flow. There are actually others, but we're. <laughs> Let me, but all of this would be happening for me as a data engineer in a very straightforward user experience that, you know, should make it relatively easy for me to combine these things and do those transforms in plain English. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. One thing that we haven't discussed is, you know, most streaming systems and when you're doing transformations in streaming systems, they impose window and semantics, right? So the thing that you described is actually quite hard in that case, right? Because when doing semantics, usually you're not going to be going back more than a couple days. Um, and so Flow actually, and Johnny can get into this, probably has a means to not have to impose that type of semantic. I was wondering a little bit about that when we talked a little bit uh, earlier. Um, do you want to just address that, Johnny? Sure. Um, and I, I'm, I'm threading the needle here on, on how deeply to go down the rabbit hole. but um... I think so far it's been good. There's, there, I have two answers to this question, and I just think I don't want to overcomplicate things, but um, uh, I'll give one answer just fleshing out the, the, the call center, you know, the customer ID example we were talking about. Um, one thing that is unique about how materializations work in flow is that it is actually, um, rather than just being a one-way sort of like pushing data into a system, it is actually uh, a reduction of data into a view within that system. So what that specifically means is that if I have like call center events that come in for some particular customer ID, uh, what the materialization does is it's going and it's fetching out the previous uh, document for that customer ID on my key volume store. Let's say I'm using like DynamoDB or a big table or something like that. It's fetching out the current document from that key volume store and then it's reducing the new call center events that come in into that document, essentially enriching that document, and then putting it back into the key value store. So this is one way of doing joins where there's no state involved like along in the pipeline. It's just all the state that exists in that key value store. Uh, so that's my first answer to the question of how can joins work. Um, the second answer is that transformations can actually be stateful as well. Think of an example of where you might want to use this. Um, we we have like a, a little example worked up, and we'll we'll have a lot more content around this over the next few months. But um, I imagine that I'm like a, a bank of some kind, like I have crypto kittens or something like that, um, where you know I have different accounts that have different funding levels. So like Apple has this much in her account, Bob has that much, and imagine that I have like transfer requests that are coming in. And for each transfer request, I need to like approve or deny the transfer based on whether there's enough funding in the account. Um, and that's a, that's a very challenging sort of stateful streaming problem because in order to do that correctly, I need to know how much money is in each account and I need to adjust that based on the decisions I'm making, whether I'm going to approve or deny a transfer request uh, for a given funding. 
I know everyone's worried about banking right now, and I don't want to add to that, but I will just say it's actually super hard to know how much money exactly is in an account at any one second. Um, just from a pure technical math perspective, uh, it gets really much trickier than you think. Yeah. So um, I this is uh, you are able to do stateful streaming, and, and like in order to do this correctly, you need to, to track that that account balance, and that's. An example of the kind of thing that you're able to do with uh, with transfer engines and stuff. I'm really glad we talked about that. I think that's an incredibly th important thing to call out. Um, when I talked about you know easy for engineers, that is a very uh, elegant, thoughtful approach that very large, complicated organizations need. Uh, so that's a great example. Um, I'm going to um, just kind of get Johnny off the hot seat a little bit, maybe. Uh, there you go. Welcome to contribute. You know, I really, I feel like I'm really interested in collecting some more use cases around people, you know, like that's just my tired example that I carry around. Maybe you can add to my list of types of things without, to the extent you can share. How are people um, wanting to use Estuary to fit over all these data sources? Yeah, so I'm happy to dive into that a bit. Um... You know, the highest level, one of the biggest use cases we see is, is standard CDC, right? St CDC, change data capture. I have a database um, and I want to keep track of all the changes in that and, and put it into an external system. So it's a pretty straightforward use case and, and really, you know, underutilizing kind of the power of the system. We see that. We see um, a pretty common theme is something similar to what you mentioned, which is customer 360, um, you know, that's the, the quintessential use case that requires historical data and, and real-time data. So travel companies tend to use it. They have a lot of like customer in the loop use cases where they're tying together what their customers have done. Um, another thing that we see is, um, you know, MarTech companies, they, I, I mentioned that um, it's, it's very important to have access to, to real-time data when you're doing any sort of um, advertising. So having access to knowing what someone's done recently, um, according to at least Gartner, can boost your ROI by 2x to, to 10x. Um, and we definitely see some of that. Um, SOX compliance is a weird use case, like where you, you want to have all your historical data and you want to have a, a record of every single change in like an insurance or a fintech database. Um, so that's, you know, something else that see we that see. Coming. I didn't see that coming, but that makes that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like one other really weird one that we were not expecting to have happen was um, a, a large seam company came to us and they had a problem with just like, you know, that's a very expensive problem, seam companies in general, uh, just being able to index and store historical data and being able to then um, use that um, in, in the moment in real time. So that's something that um, this this helps with as well. So, you know, that one was actually more about like Gazette and, you know, the underlying, the underlying system saving a lot of money versus, versus like a Kafka. That's a pretty serious, um, that's a big problem statement that you will hear out there um, in complex financials um, in particular, um, working with seams. Uh, that, that's been my exposure to it, but it's a, that's an interesting one. Um, so um, just kind of switching over to talk a little bit about implementations. So these are some of the use cases that we, you know, we talk about. Everybody wants to do this, but like, how do you get something that happens with a lot of data companies is you're like, hey, give me all your data and I'll show you what I can do. And this is often like hard for people to digest. What do you find are like, or have you found are good starting points for people to get comfortable 
Yeah, um, that's a good question. So maybe I think Johnny and I probably are going to both comment on this one, but um, I would say that let's let's dive a little into our go to market, which is slightly different than most companies in this space. I think most streaming companies tend to be focused totally 100% on enterprise customers, right? There's really very few, if any, that I, I don't know of any personally that, that focus on um, kind of like SMB use cases. And, you know, what we've done is we've really tr gone headfirst into the, the PLG go-to-market of come to our website, use the product for free, show, show you its value, and, you know, get, get to start using it. So... That's definitely something that um, it, it encourages people to come with kind of a demo database and just try it out themselves. So it, it, that's actually a hard problem. Demo databases tend to be set up really poorly. So it, it's led us to um, to have to really make um, strengthen the product and, and, and solidify it and make it, you know, be able to handle every single edge case of, of a very poorly structured demo database. Um, but that's the primary thing that we we do now. It changes a bit when we work with an enterprise because inevitably, you know, we do. Um, and that that you know, Johnny likes to say something in that case, which is, "Give us not your top priority because that's something that you know it's going to take six months to get started. You're not going to want to dump all your data into it, and so on and so forth. Um, give us like your second or third priority, and we'll start working with that thing, and then um, move on from there." You know, one other thing that we, we do in that case is we never store any data on our side, right? We have, um, we store data in cloud storage, but we don't, we don't use our own cloud storage. We use the customer's cloud storage. So we actually have a pretty strong posture where data is only ever processed in root. Um, and it, it's pretty, you know, capable in that way. One last thing that we do is, um, we're in, we're almost uh, done with the SOC 2 certification. So we'll see. Hopefully that will happen soon. Congratulations. But, That's not trivial. Yeah, it's a pain. <laughs> uh, Johnny, did I steal your thunder on that one? Yeah, just a little bit, so, but that was great. Um, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, no one's going to, uh, nor would I recommend anybody swap out sort of mission critical streaming applications and use cases within their business. That would be absolutely silly. Um, but there tends to be, like, generally, uh, there there tend to be small teams within organizations who are handling a lot of like the fast moving data cases and they're always over indexed on work because there's always more to do there more that the organization like done. So there's generally a laundry list of priorities and the, the top of the list you might actually get engineering staffing to do. And then the rest of the list is um, basically things that the organization would like that is not staffed. So that tends to be lower risk uh, areas for, for people to kind of try out a, a company like us and the product like ours. Um, and that's, that's generally what we push for. Like, let's give us, give us the stuff that you know you're not going to get to that's uh, that's net new and beneficial. Uh, and, you know, let's try that. So I like that, um, you know, like items 11 and 12. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big enough to be visible to management who's going to write a check, but small enough not to scare anyone. Um, right, and then work your way up from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to just switch over to talk a little bit about the business and a little bit about you guys. Um, we're, uh, give us a, a, you know, Dave, I feel like I've watched SUA for quite some time, but like, where are you at right now as a company? Yeah, sure. So we actually launched that free tier that I was talking about seven weeks ago. So 
that was a pretty big milestone for us. Um, we've been really focused on building and, and being honestly pretty conservative, especially given, given the current environment um, for, for, you know, running a startup and fundraising and everything like that. So um, we raised about a year and a half ago at this point and built for the last year and a half. I think Jocelyn, you and I probably met kind of at the beginning of that, that time period. So yeah, that's, that's really where we are. Um, we're focused on a few things now. So Johnny mentioned the SQL product that we're taking to market now. And we're really excited about that because, you know, that's a, that's a huge thing for us. Um, aside from that, we're focused on building kind of connectors, um, you know, focused on customer use cases where they need access to data in some system or to push data to some system. And we've gotten to the point where we can add those pretty quickly. So, you know, a new connector for us takes about two weeks. These are real-time streaming connectors, uh, very low latency to systems. So that they take some engineering effort, but we've gotten them to be relatively quick with a protocol that we have. Um, that's really like where we are until our next, next, you know, like round of funding where we're focused on adding clients and making the experience great for users and just ensuring that they have a, a really good onboarding experience. So the next thing that we'll be doing after that will be um, probably adding more transformation capabilities. We have a path for like Python and other things like that. Um, and then I mentioned VPC deployments um, and VPC deployments will allow us to go into much more sensitive data use cases, um, which we can't really do right now. So that's where we are. Um, did I touch everything? Is that what you were getting at? Yeah. Also, you know, like who, um, let me ask who, who are you selling to in the organization? What type of person is like, Oh, I get it. Yeah. So data, data engineers for sure are like the users. Um, they, they tend to be the first person that comes in and uses the system. Uh, I'd say that probably architects or, you know, CTOs are, are the buyers. Um, and that, those two personas are the ones that we end up, um, working with the most at this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. How do you think about your like adoption roadmap? Um, not, not with like, you know, specifics, but, um, let me give you an example. Um, uh, tons of people use our, uh, sandbox offering and we're, a, you know, a grassroots success that drives into organizations, or maybe it's like, Hey, we land a couple of giant enterprises and flow it down. Like, what are your, what are your thoughts about the shape of adoption? We're going the, the former route more than the latter route. Um, we would have done VPC yesterday if, if we were going the latter route, right? We'd need, we'd need to do that. But we're really trying to make a, a product that engineers love to use um, and that they have a great experience the first time that they try it out. Um, they bring it into their organization. We do tend to see a lot of opinionated people coming in who have a specific use case. Um, and and are, you know the first thing they do is they come into the product and try to connect their database to it. Um, so like that's the, you know, usually that's um, a company, they're on behalf of a company um, and user, usually they're a data engineer. Uh, but we do see, you know, both. We, we also see individual engineers who have pet projects and are looking for that as well. I have to say, when you say PLG for data, it sort of feels like uh, home dentistry a little bit. You know, it definitely invites uh, some headaches because people do have edge cases and different points of view. Yep, that's that's a hundred percent the case, but I think you, you see those edge cases no matter what, right? Like whenever you're working with a new client, a big new client, you're going to, you're going to see edge case upon edge case upon edge case. 
Absolutely. And I think, uh, first of all, I think, you know, it's Johnny is here, you know, it's, uh, I come from a software background and like software culture and data culture is different. Uh, there's a little bit more of a, I totally love the data people, but there's a little bit of a gotcha or let's see how it works on my data, even though it works on everybody else's, it's a little bit of a show me skepticism. Um, so I think, you know, you know, I think that's one thing you just have to accept when you are in this market with these guys. Um, I think PLG in, in, you know, the data pipelining space, I think is a noble effort and, you know, you got to get started to get it done. There's no way to do this abstractly. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an interesting, uh, I'm not going to quite call it a misstep, but coming from a, a software engineering background, uh, in the way that we built the product, there was a lot of focus on like data integrity. So, you know, the worst thing you can do in a data pipeline is write bad data that then propagate downstream. So we built in a lot of features around schematization and essentially lots of integrity checking um, upfront in the product to make sure that we don't write bad data, you know, to, to reduce that as much as possible. But something we've also kind of encountered in the PLG path is that a lot of users just want us to deal with their mess. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, I have a mess. I want it from here to there. And by the way, I'm going to be changing the schema every two seconds. So please just deal with that. <laughs> um, and yes, that's been a surprise for us a little bit. Uh, and it, you know, I, I think the data integrity features are warranted and valuable, but it also kind of is a friction in some respects for users who just kind of want to throw some mud at us and see what happens. So yeah, that's, um, that's been a bit of the path too. Yeah, there's no, uh, you know, much has been said about the agile methodology. It doesn't need my extra vote, but I think this is a perfect example of doing something concrete, shakes out all the information so much faster than trying to figure it out. You know, um, that's a perfect example. Um, anything else? I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your individual journeys uh, and before we're done, I guess you can't say journey anymore. It's kind of cringe, huh? But you know what I mean? Um you know, anything I haven't asked about uh, the, the business side or the tech side that, you know, is definitely something I should know or our listeners should know? I don't have too much, to be honest. I think we've, we've covered a lot of grounds. And, um, but, yeah, high level, I'll just like rounding it out. We are a data pipeline company. We work with CDC. We also work with SaaS APIs, so we can connect to um, batch data sets. Um, and we can also connect to real-time stuff and it's uh everything else i think we covered i think i did forget to ask one thing is what is the structure or philosophy of your pricing it's a good question um so the honest truth is that we were cheap we we believe we're really good at um, processing data and doing it at relatively cheaply and you know as such we've we've priced a little bit more like what you would get from uh, gcp or something than um, a standard data processor, which is probably like 10, 15, 20x of what you would get from a GCP. Um, so it is a volume-based pricing game with with um, essentially a, um, a minimum per connection that we make, but that's about it. Um, so 75 cents a gigabyte and, and that's it. Yeah, one and one really important distinction is when we talk about like per gigabyte pricing or anything, it's on data movement. That's not like the total size of the, like a lot of the, a lot of the time when we talk about this, it's based on like the amount of data in a collection. That is not what we are talking about. We are just talking about data that needs to actually move from one place to another. So you're not being charged for data at rest, which is really common in this space. 
I got a little scared about that, and uh, I was hesitating to ask you to the end. Uh, so that's that's good to call out. Um, so I was looking at your bios. You guys have done one company together or two? Two companies, right? We've worked. So we worked at Invite Media together, which we sold to Google, um, and then we started Arbor um, and sold that to LiveRamp. So technically four. <laughs> like, uh, I don't mean this in an obnoxious way, but have you guys had real jobs other than startups? <laughs> <laughs> Well, whenever we got bought, we had to have a real job for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I think there was one briefly after college for a little while, but my memory is a little lazy. <laughs> so it's interesting. I'd love to get some, um, certainly founding a company is a special thing. You know, there's nothing like quitting your job. Being an early employee is great, but quitting your j real job, you know, to do a startup is a special thing. Um, you know, we've just um, had a real change of uh, environment. Uh in the startup world, right. About, you know, what it means to take that risk. Um, you know, I'm just curious, how is your, like, how have you evolved your thinking about this? Has it always just been like startup or bust or, you know, are you thinking it's startup under certain circumstances in my life? Like what, uh, for yourself has been kind of the evolution of your startup mentality? For me, um, I kind of got roped in pretty early in my career to startups. And, um, I like to look at startups as like, a pyramid scheme. <laughs> what I mean by that is like, if you're in a successful startup, it's, it's uh, this thing where the base grows around you and you, you kind of end up at the top of the pyramid and it's not somehow um, just all works out. So it's a pretty amazing experience when, when that works. And once you've had the taste of your first, you kind of move on and you, can, you it's hard to get to lose the taste for it. Um, I think the hardest thing that I did personally, and I, probably speak for Johnny too, is when we left Google and we started a company ourselves, that was a very, very difficult experience. And that was in an environment that looks a lot more like today's environment than it did for the last three years. Yeah. Um, so I don't look at this environment right now as that all that different from any historic time period. Um, it's kind of like back to normal in some ways, right? You have to have metrics, go figure to to actually like raise money and build a good company. Um, in that way, you know, people got hooked on easy money and I don't think that that's the case anymore. So you have to build a real company and you have to approach it from a different um, situation than you had in the past. Um, so for me, I think this is what we were expecting. This is, this is the type of startup environment that we've always lived in. And it's, it's no different. I, I personally love doing startup companies. They're hard, right? Like when you're in it, it's really, really hard. And sometimes you look at yourself and you say like, why did we do that? <laughs> you know, this is, this is really, really difficult. Um, but it, I, I wouldn't give that up personally. Yeah. And, and you know, the current macroeconomic climate is not fun and layoffs are not fun, but if there is a silver lining, it's that I hope we see a lot more company formation from people trying it, you know, um, the, the, the golden goose of like the bang job is, is, you know, the, the, the bloom is off that road a little bit. So it's, it's kind of a fabulous time in technology. It's very exciting times right now. So, um, yeah, I think I just, I you know, it's, there's a lot of risk and it's, uh, um, you know, there are wide varieties of personal reasons why you may or may not want to do it, but it, it is, can be a very rewarding journey. Yeah, I uh, I like your pyramid scheme analogy. Uh, although I will say um, something I, I tell my kids and I think is really evidence in the entrepreneurial world is that if you um, 
my, you know, it's an f- old phrase my mother used to use, which is desire rules the world. So if you have an idea and you're going for it, it's just uh, people are attracted to you. They do want to be part of an idea and a point of view much more than we realize. Yeah, that's a really, really good phrase. I haven't heard that one before. It's interesting, right? If you just have it, put it out there. I don't know. People talk about mindset now. Maybe that's related uh, as well. But um, yeah, I think that is something people have talked about is, um, you know, just such a rich environment, especially for software developers to go to the fat corporate jobs. I think it may have slowed down innovation a little bit. So I'm hoping that um, once they, you know, salve their wounds, (laughs) it hurt. Yeah, I could attest that environments within Fangs sometimes feel like the innovation was slowed down, <laughs> um, versus, especially versus a startup where you have to be really hungry and the desire is just there. What um, What is the hardest thing when you're about doing a startup in the early days? I think that's a good question because I, I personally believe that every part of a startup feels like it's harder than the last and you always feel like it's getting easier, but it's also getting harder at the same time. So it's a really hard thing to say because, you know, your problems get larger as the startup grows. Um, but at least they're not as um, quintessential as time goes on. Um, so you have like this quintessential risk of like, will anyone ever buy my product when you first start the company? Um, it's more able to deal with that existential stress. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, I think... For me, it, it's a journey and, and each part of it is kind of like, especially as a founder, you're, you're taking on different um, tool sets and you're taking on different responsibilities as the journey progresses. That's just part of it. I don't think that personally any part is harder than the other. It's just making sure that you've, you, you really focus on the, the biggest problems at the right time and hire for the, you know, hire for them as you need to. I would say it's, um, the hardest part is the degree to which everything is your problem. Like there are no problems that are not your problem. Um, and you know, you can build great teams of people who are amazing people and incredibly helpful and whatnot. But at the end of the day, everything is your problem. Um, and I, I, I really don't know how single founders do it. Like the, it, that part is like the, the degree of how you have to sort of own everything, even if you're delegating. Uh, that is the most challenging aspect and having a co-founder like helps in more and you know, an amazing amount there. I don't know how single founders do it. It's especially d- difficult. And it's nice that you guys have um, been kicked around together, you know, so that you have that shared experience and that trust too, because it takes a while to build that up uh, and have someone to be in the, in the foxhole with you. Um, so that, that really shines through that you have our good colleagues as well as friends. I hope you are, but it certainly seems like you are. Um, yeah, I like to call that the state of hyper relevance. Um, <laughs> uh, when I left a startup and I, I went to a big uh, tech company, I was like, you know what? It's not as cool, but I can take two days off and no one cares. <laughs> <It's Yeah. nice. laughs> it is funny, though, how when you have to deal with every single problem, you realize that nothing is insurmountable anymore and that you can, you can kind of accomplish anything. Whereas when you don't have to deal with that, you kind of just say, well, that's, you know, I can't do that. That's someone else's job. There's no way that I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I have to say the the best founders I've seen and what I think is the gap between me and great founders is this sort of like innate calm and they seem very difficult to shock, completely shock. 
Um, whereas I would be a little bit more panicky probably when confronted with <laughs> these problems. So um, I do think that's an important entrepreneurial skill is to be or at least seem phlegmatic. Um, yeah. Any other advice? For, you know, a lot of people listen to the show who are technical people who might want to start a company in the future. Any uh, advice to them in these uh, like sort of tense economic times? Should they keep their job, look for a startup, you know, find a partner? What would you say is a good starting point? I think it's a different I, journey. Go for it, Johnny. Yeah. Um, I think uh, spending some time working at a startup was extremely valuable, at least for me. I'll just speak for myself individually because I, I don't feel I can answer this question for others, but uh, I would not have had the comfort in doing it, uh, scary as it was at the time, without the benefit of a bunch of hindsight of being at a startup and kind of watching its growth and seeing from the inside a little bit more how that actually worked. Mm -hmm. That didn't teach me everything at all, but it, it sort of gave me enough of a taste to, to, to build some comfort. Um, I like that. I like that recommendation. That. I'd like to see more VCs do that, you know, like really get into the trenches with the operators. That's a good idea. I like that too. Um, I think I agree with what Johnny said. One other thing that I'd add to it is that it never feels like it's the right time. And when you jump in, that's when you figure it out. So probably a little bit before you're ready for it. But if you know you want to do it a little bit before you're ready for it, otherwise you're never going to do it. But otherwise. I like that. Yeah. I, I think that's right. One little story I'll, I'll, I'll leave with. Uh, the, the previous company that Dave and I founded, uh, it's called Arbor. When we left Google, we had a completely different business model, a completely different business of what we thought we were going to be doing that lasted two weeks before we jumped it and moved on to something else. So like having an idea is, it's kind of important. It's certainly important to think like, okay, I have something I'm clearly running at. Like I know what I'm gonna start with, but the idea before you start is not, you know, you may do it, you may not, and that's okay. That is a really great comment. I you did a lot of new product development in my product background. And, you know, people say like, well, we don't want to rework. We want to, I'm like, yeah, just throw stuff out. You know, it's very important to commit and then throw it out <laughs> like a goldfish going around the bowl. <laughs> you just have to kind of push that away. So that's a really, that's a good uh, mental uh, mindset uh, activity for those of us who are thinking about starting a company. We'll start working on that. Um, ability to switch gears. Um, anyway, it's um, it's just so great to connect with you. You seem like, um, well, you certainly have an amazing product and you have a great working relationship uh, as well. We really want to thank you for spending some time with Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us. Yeah, That's thank you. It was fun.